0: Welcome to Eye on the Ball. Uh, thank you for listening in on this frigid Louisiana afternoon. That's a word you don't hear much as a adverb to describe Louisiana weather, but it's a cold day, but we're thankful to have you here. I'm with Garrett Rands. I'm Tim Everett, and we're helping you keep your eye on all that matters. And today we're talking about money matters. So, Garrett, this is your wheelhouse, and uh, we'll be asking you some questions about how we as individuals can have the right biblically responsible attitude toward uh, all things um, considered with money. So I um, want to start out this afternoon asking you, what's the number one mistake that people make concerning their money?
1: You know, I think the, the perceived number one mistake is debt. And the reality is debt's not a problem. Debt's a symptom. It's it's a consequence mm-hmm. of the real problem. and And a lot of people would say that, Okay, well, we get that, and that consumption is the real problem. Uh-huh. And you could say that, and that's not incorrect, but really our overconsumption comes from the love of money. And, and people like to deny that. We, we all love money, and we all love money in a lot of different ways, but the reality is that our overconsumption is what causes the debt, and our love of money or the things that money can buy is what causes our overconsumption. There are exceptions to that rule. Of course Um, you know, some people get in trouble with, with debt, with medical bills uh, or or cancer treatment and other things. So there are some exceptions. Absolutely. And you know, we, we, we feel very regrettable about those circumstances, but the vast majority of debt is debt that you assume on your own, under your own free will, knowing that it's going to be a problem at some point in the future. And then, just not really caring mm-hmm. or maybe you think that one day you're going to have more income you're going to make more money and the debt's not going to matter but the reality is debt always matters mm-hmm. and you know what the bible says is is that the the debtor is the slave to the lender and and that that holds true no matter what level you're at whether you're talking about a $5 debt or a or a $5 million debt i mean that's that holds true across the board you know one thing that i would mention and i don't i don't do this much i don't i don't quote <laughs> Um, liberals for the most part very much, but it's it's not to say that people who are on the opposite side of, of arguments don't have valid arguments. And so um, I read a book by Elizabeth Warren uh, called The Double Income Trap. I believe she wrote the book um, with her daughter. And um, I think it was in a time when she was still a professor at, at, at Harvard, maybe, mm-hmm. um, or it was that, that was at least part of the time. And they make the point that we, we put ourselves into a trap where we have to have incomes in order to support our household. And the reason that we do that is because we want something better for our kids. We want our kids to go to the best school that we can afford to put them in. We want um, our kids to have, uh, you know, access to uh, things that expand their minds like music. And uh, in, like in my case, you know, riding a horse uh, for for my little girl. She likes, she likes horses, but all these things cost money. And when we step into things that uh, cost money that we really don't have to spare, then it, it, it creates this consumption problem, this, this debt problem. And so the point that, that she's making in the book is that we've created a country where the expectation is that everybody's going to have two incomes and it's driven house prices up and, and, and various other things that are what we, we would consider normal in order to put our kids in a good school. And now I I completely disagree with how she thinks about solving the the issue, Mm -hmm. but she makes a valid point that we've done that and and that our expectation of what's quote normal is much higher than it was 50 or 70 years ago. And so um, it's created this attitude of entitlement that we have. and, And there's no ability in our current society to delay gratification of any kind. So we want what we want and we want it now. And, you know, credit cards and, and e- what we call easy money or easy lending has made it where we can buy homes that we really can't afford, cars that we can't afford, use credit cards to buy purchases and, and fund, you know, extravagant vacations and Christmas gifts and things like that that we really can't afford. And so the, the the root of the problem is not even overconsumption. It's the love of money. And even if we love money for what we consider in our own brains to be good reasons, it's still the love of money.
0: That's um, misquoted, isn't it? Uh, people are always saying the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, but they're leaving out a word, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. It's the love. Money Money can't be good or evil. It's an object. So it doesn't have it's the amoral. ability. moral
0: It's not moral or immoral. It's an object that Correct. our attitude makes it moral or
1: immoral. Absolutely. So you can't look at somebody that's wealthy and go, well, their money is evil, <laughs> and look at somebody that's poor and say, "Well, their money is good and hard earned." You don't know. You don't know the story. Money is just money, and um, it it can't be anything else. Okay,
0: yeah. Let's um, dive a little bit deeper into that subject of the love of money. Um, so, you can't really tell a person's attitude by how much of what they have. If they have a little or too much, or do you think that um it's easier for a, a poor person, a middle class, or wealthier to abstain from having um, the wrong attitude concerning money, or is it across the board?
1: I, you know, that's, that's a good question. I, I think it's across the board. Uh, so I have identified, in my own words, um, six ways in which we love money, and I'm, I'm kind of a numbers person. I'm sure that there's more or less, depending on how you group things, but, um, you know, we think of Threes and sevens as being good numbers, uh, you know the Trinity, you know the seven churches. We, we think of those as being good numbers. We think of sixes as being bad numbers, um, incomplete numbers, and so coming up um, short of seven. Absolutely, and and that's kind of where I I have this with money. So the first one we've already kind of mentioned is the overconsumption syndrome, where mm-hmm. we love the things that money can buy for us, and we we spend more on our house, we spend more on our vehicles. And we spend more for gifts and vacations than we can really afford. So we love the things that money can buy. The The next thing that I have a syndrome listed here is, is what I call monetary self-worth syndrome. And that's where we, we relate where we are in life to how much money we have. And, and we do this, whether we mean to or not, it's, it can really be a subconscious thing. So for example, if you're going to go to somebody and get advice about business, who are you going to go to? Are you going to go to somebody that makes a lot of money? Are you going to go to somebody that's struggling? Mm -hmm. And the reality is that person that's making a lot of money may not be any better than the person who's struggling. Mm -hmm. And they certainly may not be as moral, but so our, you know, our brain is, is automatically programmed to think that, well, if they, they're worth more money, if they have more money, if they, if they have more income, then they're smarter or they're better than people that don't. And that's a, that's a big misnomer. It's caused a societal problem. You know, we have lots of people that are famous just because they're wealthy, Mm -hmm. you know, and they have, they've been given a spotlight because of the amount of money that they have. And we really don't know much about them in terms of the person that they are and where their ethics lie. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the second one. The third one, which I think is really a big problem for, um, people in our area, it's what I call the, the monetary Linus blanket syndrome. And that's where money is their security. So they think if they have enough money, they can have good health care, they can have a good retirement, that they're always going to be safe. And so instead of trusting God to be their security, their shield, which is what the Bible tells us, they trust in money. And so they they structure their lives in a way that everything is about money. And yeah,
0: as a, as a Christian, we use the word security to talk about salvation. So... Absolutely. Some people are looking to money for their salvation.
1: Well, then think about all the decisions that we make based on that security and and the security that money can provide. So we have in the past sent our children to college that cost a lot of money now. It it, it hasn't always been so out of proportion in in terms of the cost of education and, and the amount of money that you get on the other side. But does it make any sense to send somebody to college for four years that's going to cost $50,000 a year and when they graduate they're going to have a $40,000 a year job and $250,000 of debt right you know and i say 250 because in our brains we go well 4 years of college at $50,000 a year you're going to have 200,000 no you're not you're going to have a lot more than that because the interest is going the to interest, accrue yeah. mm-hmm. so we make all these decisions based on money and the security that it can provide and the reality is all all that we have can be taken from us in the blink of an eye and if you think about the currencies of the world think about this every currency in the history of the world has failed all a, all a currency is mm-hmm. is something that the government is guaranteeing now at one time we were on what's called the gold standard and that was done away with and and that allowed you know our government and the the processes there within to print all that they want and that's created a, a whole nother set of issues. But the reality is it's it's money isn't even real. Mm-hmm. Money is something that the government guarantees. And so every monetary system throughout the history of the world has always failed. You just got to give it enough time. So will there be a US dollar in a thousand years? There's no way. We're not going to make it. We're headed down the wrong stretch. And that's, you know, forget about whether Jesus comes back and Armageddon comes and all those sorts of things. If if we were just left alone for the next thousand years, our monetary system will not make it for another thousand years, the way that we're spending money and the way that we've structured things.
0: So we need to develop an attitude that survives change um, because our money may not...
1: Our, Our money... Will not, and yeah, the Bible says yeah. that those that trust in riches will fall. And I, I can't tell you which proverb that is. A lot of a lot of these that I quote are in Proverbs, and there's a lot of numbers, but you can look that up. Those that trust in riches will fall, and 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 that's a that's a guarantee. That's a biblical guarantee that if you place your hope and your security in money, that you're going to have a problem. And so that's uh, that's the third one. The fourth one is what I call the monetary legacy syndrome where we feel like it's an obligation for us to make a lot of wealth, to accumulate a lot of wealth so that we can leave our children better off than we were. And that's not really, it's not a bad thing or a, or, or a good thing, it's, it's a matter of priority. So when we prioritize that, it becomes a problem. When we prioritize, this is, this is why we live. We live to make wealth so that our kids are better off than we are, then it's become a problem. Instead of living to glorify the Lord, you're living to glorify your name and your and your children. And, and our sense of
0: so purpose we, has been wrapped up with our income. Absolutely. A,
1: yeah. So that's the fourth one. The fifth one is what I call a monetary notoriety complex or the Rockefeller syndrome, where it, it's the idea that we're gonna accumulate all this wealth throughout our lives. But you know, we're, but it's okay because one day we're gonna we're gonna give it all away to charity. And so we see statues and we see parks and we see buildings and we see all these things with, with, you know, Rockefeller, the name on it, you know, and, and that goes across the country. Any, any town that you go to, you're going to see statues of people. You're going to see parks named after people. And so, a lot of people have that in their brain. It's like, I'm, I'm going to build a name for myself and I'm, oh, I'm going to donate this park bench and I want to make sure that my name is on it. And I'm not downgrading people that have done that, that have you know, left gifts and honors of others. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the mindset that we can easily fall into that that's our purpose for living is that mm-hmm. we're going to... Our purpose in living is, is to make a legacy for ourselves, to, to make our name famous. And then the last one is what... Um, it's another kind of a problem. It's a, it's a way that we love money. We love to judge other people's money, you know, right. We see our neighbor driving an $80,000 car and we go, well, who do they think they are driving that kind of car? They don't make that kind of money. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't really know. Um, Mm -hmm. I can tell you from personal experience, um, my clientele through the years, many of the ones that have the most money, you would never know it, right? I mean, they wear the same clothes that they wore 20 years ago. They hadn't bought new clothes in a decade. You know, they drive v they buy used vehicles that have high miles. That that's what they do. They live in the same house that they've lived in for fifty years. And they've got they've accumulated a lot of wealth. And it's because they didn't spend it. You know, it's not it's not a magic formula. If you don't spend it and you save it, then you're gonna have more money. And and so we don't know what's going on with somebody's life when we look at a car that they drive or when we um, see how they dress, you don't know what's going on in their heart. And so it's it's so easy for us to to look at somebody and judge them based on what they have. And by the same token, we can we can also look at somebody and that's that's dressed very poorly and go, well, they they're probably lazy because they don't have any money because they're dressed like that. Mm-hmm. So they're they're not good people because of this, you know. And so that's the six things that I've kind of identified yeah. as our love of money or or money problems, money issues that we have.
0: What would you suggest to a conservative Christian who's concerned that Wall Street's made a hard left turn, you know, maybe toward China or toward socialism or, you know, I've always thought that corporate America was center-right, you know, America. They were aligned more with Republican values, if, if nothing else, Republican country club values, if not social value issues. But, um, um, what would you suggest? I mean, we, we watch a lot of news on television. Uh, we become very insecure about where we are as a country and our economy. So, back to the subject of attitudes. What should be a conservative Christian's personal attitude about how they can handle the the changes that are taking place in our our country?
1: So, the first thing I would I would say, um, right off the top of my head, is is I think that's correct and incorrect. I think it's correct because we do see a change in morality in our country. And that's obviously uh, very visible in a lot of corporations. I say it's partially incorrect because prior to coronavirus, we had 6 million businesses in our country, 6 million corporations. Only 6,000 of those corporations are publicly traded. And then of those 6,000 that are publicly traded and listed on stock exchanges, we only really hear about one to 200 of them because that's the ones in, that are in the news all the time. Right, That's the most powerful ones. The Amazons, the Netflix, the Walmarts, the Home Depots. Those are the names that we know. They're the ones that get the spotlight and they have become, they have caved in to the left into giving to those causes. Are they driving the
0: news, but not necessarily the economy? Or Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: And, and not to say that they don't play a role in the economy, mm-hmm. but yeah. you can't count I would really call that a handful of companies, when you compare it to the six million that we had. I don't. I don't know what the number is after coronavirus. I'm scared to. Mm-hmm. I'm scared to know. But um, they play a role in our economy, but they are not our whole economy. Okay. And so I, I think that statement is both correct and incorrect. Um, it should concern all of us, and that's one of the reasons why we've got a movement now in the Christian community called biblically responsible investing. And most people are not familiar with this term. Right. right? And what's been happening through the, the decades is that we've been, I don't want to say forced, but at least our retirement accounts have gone through the transition of uh, what we would call defined benefit pension plans, which is the way that uh, kind of the normal that things were 70, 80 years ago into 401ks. So your 401ks, your, your 403b's, your 457s, they're all the same type of plans it just depends on whether you work for a for-profit or a not a not-for-profit company or a government entity, and within those plans, there are mutual funds. In, in every one of them, in every one of those mutual funds, somebody else is picking the investments, mm-hmm. and in those investments that they're choosing, those corporations are doing exactly the thing that you're talking about, which is, you know, donating money to causes that are not conservative, mm-hmm. and and not just you know, not just non-Christian, but I mean, to really extremely radical things. So we as Christians, as conservatives, both, you know, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian and you're a conservative, we've been funding these things and profiting from them. And so that's why it's important that as, as a Christian community, that we seek to honor God with our money and we seek to exclude those types of investments from what we have and we, we go down this path of being biblically responsible. And, and we're, it's, a, it's a growing community and it's a growing thing. And, I'm, you know, I'm one of many people that are working diligently to, to spread the word about what this is and, and, and our alternative choices that do not fund those things. Now, within our 401K, we don't have a lot of choice. We're, we're, we're pretty limited. I mean, if you work for, you know, uh, here locally, if you look, work for Albemarle, there's not much you can do with your money that's in your album plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just kind of have to do what you can do. You, you can put it in the, in the cash account, you know, mm-hmm. and you're being biblically responsible doing that, but I'm not even asking people to do that because uh, you know, that's kind of uh, in, in some ways it's a little bit counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a conviction of someone's, I, I definitely encourage that. And if I was personally working for a corporation and their investments were not biblically responsible. I would be going into the cash or the government bond account, mm-hmm. uh, s- simply to remain that way. But that's not a that's not a conviction for everybody. So,
0: what it seems to me that academics oppose nearly every conservative Christian value that I hold. Uh, what role does education, you know, particularly higher education, have? In affecting um, our economy, and particularly our attitude about money in our economy, the um, the lack of Christian values in economics. Um, what's taking place in the business departments of universities today?
1: You know, that's a good question. I'm not there. I'm not part of the academic yeah. world. I do know this. I do see trends, and mm-hmm. and one of the trends that we have seen, and it kind of goes back to that love of money problem that that monetary line of blanket syndrome we were programmed to think that the only way that you're going to have job security is if you have an education Mm -hmm. so you got to go to college and so that in and of itself has created kind of an academic problem And, and the reality is depending on where you live you have more job security doing other things you know i mean i've i've got a next door neighbor that um has done pretty well through the years as far as keeping a job. He's, I mean, there's always some, some hard times to come along, but I mean, he's a, he's a blue collar worker and he's, he's had a job, um, very much throughout his career without really any, any real problems. Um, and there's numerous people that are, that are in trades and and they don't have a, they don't have a job security problem because they get up every day and they go to work. (laughs) A lot of them are business owners and a lot of them are sole proprietors and, they go get get out and get in their, their work truck every day and they go fix things for people. Um, there's probably more job security in that for a male than there is a, a college degree in business. <laughs> and so we created a paradigm in our brains based on what has been taught to us. Um, me personally, I was, I was taught, you know, Oh, you're, you're, you're too smart to not go to college. And I'm not saying that being right. They were probably, they were wrong. I was a terrible student, <laughs> you know, but, the The reality was that was kind of programmed into us to think that well you're not worth as much if you don't go to college and you don't get a college degree,
0: so there's a real world backlash to the snobbery and the bad teaching that uh, our students are being exposed to. And I, I is, think is so. College becoming more and more irrelevant to, um, to making a living in America.
1: I wouldn't say that it's irrelevant. Uh, it, it really depends on the subject matter. Um, you know, so, so for instance, if you're if you're going to go to college and you're going to, you're going to be a nurse and you're going to get your bachelor's degree in nursing. You're going to be a, a BSRN. Um, it's a great career path. You've got a lot of job security in that. It makes a lot of sense to do that. If you're going to go to college and and you're going to be a teacher, you know, and and you're not going to an expensive university and you you know what you're going to be making when you come out on the other side. And that's something that you feel called to do to be a teacher. I think this is very relevant. What doesn't make sense is what I did where you go to school and you change majors three times because you don't really know what you like. You haven't been exposed to a lot of things. You graduate with a low GPA in a in a field like exercise science, which is what I graduated in, right? And then you get out and you realize, wow, I made more money working construction than I do with a college degree working in my field. Why did I go to college? I, I could have just stayed working construction and been just as, just as well off. And so that's where... There's kind of a wake-up call. And uh, Mike Rowe, if you're familiar with Mike oh, yeah. Rowe, he's, uh-huh. he's been a, right. a, a big uh, advocate for for blue-collar jobs and, and, and right. getting people to trade schools where you go to school for a year or, or 18 months and you come out and you're able to support a family. And you can't do that with many four-year college degrees. There are some, but there's a lot of college degrees for, with four years, and you're lucky to find a job at all when you get out, much less one that pays enough to support a family. I mean, what does a, what does a degree? in in general studies do for you what does a degree a four-year degree in psychology do for you if you don't go on to get your master's or your doctorate you haven't really done yourself any favors you've spent some money you've gotten an education and there's no value to it and so i'm i'm kind of in the same boat i I kind of feel like uh uh, roe does which is you know i'm advocating to young men go to trade school especially if you don't know what to do go learn and trade and you've always got that to fall on And if you go to the trade and you discover that you like it, maybe those credits transfer to a college where you could work on your four-year degree as you're working. Or maybe you go to work for a company that pays for it, you know, and you don't have to go into debt in order to to have a career.
0: Let's uh, circle back to that. Uh, We were talking about debt earlier. Um, A real fine high school teacher of mine unwittingly gave us some really bad advice in the late 70s. By saying that um, we were better off today living at home with our parents than we would be for about 20 years, it would take us about 20 years to accumulate what our parents had. But I don't think what she saw was the the easy debt that my generation could get into so quickly. You know, uh, baby boomers um, borrowed money to have what they their parents had at the beginning of their marriages, the beginning of their careers. Has that come back to haunt us today? That, oh, absolutely. that easy debt. And- absolutely. I
1: mean so with every progressive generation that we've we've come out of the Great Depression with, you know, that generation, they had to work for everything that they had. And there was no access to debt the way that we have access to debt now. So that easy money has definitely created a problem and it's and it's getting worse. I think there is a wake up call. I think there are some things that are happening. I think we're going to start seeing more competitiveness in uh, the marketplace for education. So one of the things that I've noticed, you know, kind of looking at education and cost of education, I've actually noticed some decrease in certain programs because it's becoming so competitive. And I I think that'll be a a trend going forward. At least I hope it is um, that it doesn't cost you a hundred thousand dollars to get a four year degree, you you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, but the, the idea of delayed gratification is something that that older generation was used to right i mean you had to you had to raise the chickens and they had to get old enough where they could lay eggs before you could get any eggs out of them and that was just the, the mindset with everybody growing up on a farm and my my grandparents um even though i wouldn't consider either set of them farmers but they all they both had more of a delayed gratification mindset um, you know, my, my grandfather on my, my father's side was uh, part of the World War II history there. He would be the first to tell you he was you know, not, in the, not in the thick of things. He was a military police and had it pretty good. But he was over there in another country, you know, uh, serving our nation. And, and that mindset that they had has just been completely demolished as we've come forward two generations And so everybody wants everything now. And absolutely, we're, I think we're going to see something happen within the next few years, maybe this year, who knows, Um, something that we call deleveraging, which is where there's a movement to get out of debt. Hmm. I don't think our government's going to do it, but I think we as individuals are going to make that move. Um, I think there's going to be corporations that go out of business making that move. Um, and there's going to be a lot of corporations that survive because they do that. But we, if we go through serious deleveraging, what that means is, a, a either kind of a long term, um, we would, a lot of bubbles are going to burst. Yeah. I think there's gonna be a lot of bubbles. We, I hate, I hesitate to use the word depression. That's, that's the word, that's the economic word that we're supposed to use, um, by definition. But I, I think that we're headed for a depression in the next few years, because I think we've got to get some things right. Um, and they've been artificially propped up by um, the influx of money that our government has printed, you know, and it's really not a Republican or a Democrat problem, right? It's both. I mean, mm-hmm. every, yeah. we, you know, every administration has been spending progressively more and more money. And as, as many things as we like that Trump did, he, he also probably did as almost as many bad ones in terms of spending money So somebody that's a true physical conservative is pretty disappointed with what happened during the Trump administration and the way that he spent money. Um, And if the mindset is always that we've got to spend money, that we've got to, quote, invest in our society, then it's never going to get solved. We've got to have some people to make some tough decisions to say we've got to quit spending money here altogether. And if it's part of the real marketplace, it'll develop on its own. You know, a, a great, a yeah. great example of that is, is wind and solar. I mean, right now, as we speak, the wind turbines are frozen right? and Texas is without power. And, and the, the whole idea was, oh, this is sustainable forever, you know? And I don't think it's a reality. I think if you're, if you look at it objectively and you look at the cost of the wind turbines and you look at the, the, the maintenance cost, which really aren't even figured into them. And if you, if you look at what they can produce, and look at the cost. I don't know that we're doing ourselves any favors here. Right. Um, and then, and then when they freeze up, and and pe- maybe people die because they freeze to death because they don't have electricity. You know, I, I'm I'm scared of of what we've had this week and what's coming over the next few days, um, particularly in Texas because of this. And so it's that it's that delayed gratification thing. It all it all comes back to a love of money. Mm. And I think the narrative of money controls politics and i think what controls the politics is is their own personal love of money and where they can make it and mm-hmm. i hate to say that that's a blanket statement and i know not every politician is there to make money but too many of them come out of office with a net worth 10 times of what they went in mm-hmm. and that doesn't make they sense they didn't get it from their salary no mm-hmm. their salaries are terrible mm-hmm. i mean for for, for what they, they money, are mm-hmm. for you know most of them are lawyers mm-hmm. you know and, the, and most of them had to give up something in order to, to take office. Um, at least I hope that they did. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, that's the only job they've ever had. And so, you know, they don't, maybe they don't know the difference, but we've got some, we've got some coming to Jesus to do, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. both from a political standpoint and and particularly as individuals when it comes to our money. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen the meme a lot. You know, people say that uh, I wish the government would treat, you know, my money the way that I do and mm-hmm. be responsible right. with mm-hmm. it. And, yeah. Um, we can certainly say that that nobody's guilty of that. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in in Washington.
0: Well, so you're you're telling us this afternoon that the fears and anxiety that we have concerning our economy, concerning our future, that before we change habits, we need to change our mind and our hearts, you know, our attitude about Absolutely. money. That's the very first step. That's the first step. Okay. And and how do we do that? How do we? You know, I guess we're getting to the subject of repentance, or but you know, how how, how do we change our hearts and minds about something that is obsessive as, as money? You know, it's not far from many of our minds. You know, as we
1: so it's it's I have to use this example because I think it's very similar. Um, prior to me uh, getting into the financial industry, I worked in healthcare management, and I worked for a company in Los Angeles called JEG Diversified Healthcare and my job was to manage bariatric surgery programs and bariatric surgery is something you know that we told we told people i mean it's it's in some ways it's a form of mental illness and it's a very hard one to deal with because unlike drug addictions you know alcohol or crack or anything else you can't completely abstain from food you have to have food to live mm-hmm and so be prepared this is a difficult battle and really the same thing holds true for our money we can't do without money we can't cut ourselves off from it so we have to have it to purchase the things that we need every day and so it makes it, it it makes this an uphill battle so every one of us loves money we've all got a money problem every one of us even if you don't think you do you do and so it's something that you have to stay on top of so the first thing is recognizing that yes i as a individual person, I have a problem with money, and if you identify wh- where that problem is, then you can repent and you can turn away, and then and it's not just a one time turn away thing because you keep getting presented with, you know, opportunities for, um, mm-hmm. uh, for for struggles, you know, mm-hmm. for for sinning again in in that area, and so we we have to have the, the power of the Holy Spirit to get over this, and it's it's not easy, and so it's just like any other addiction you have to work at it, and it is an uphill battle. And without the strength of the Holy Spirit, I don't—I really don't know how you do it.
0: Yeah. You know, James talks about in the Scriptures, uh, our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts to his children, but whenever we take our eyes off the giver, look at the gifts, and they become idolatry, then they become God replacements, and our God is a jealous God, will not tolerate second place to even any of the great gifts that he gives to us. So, I guess money is like, um, like family and like the church and the Bible and all these great gifts that God gives to us. It becomes idolatry whenever it becomes our our focus and becomes our God. So
1: absolutely, you know, there's three things that and, and, and this isn't an original thought. If you have an original thought, it's not yours, right? <laughs> uh, somebody else has already yeah. said it. You just have convinced yourself it's original. So this is this is not original thought. I've heard this hundreds of times. There are three tools that Satan uses on us, and it's in our nature already, so it's not hard, money, power, and sex. Yeah, absolutely. And I, personally, I think money is the, the biggest one because money can also buy power in sex. Mm-hmm. So, and sex. And, so, And we know that. So because of that, it's really kind of all three wrapped up in one. Right. And so our struggle with money is so severe, God gave us like 2,300 Bible verses to deal with it. He didn't tell us things about money once. He told us numerous times. Old Testament, New Testament. And it it's it's a theme throughout the Bible that money is a problem. And we're we're gonna have to deal with it. And you better learn to rely on him for your strength. Because at some point in your life, things are gonna be I hate to use the word almost suicidal, but hmm. probably. Wow. You know, I mean, I, I know that there have been times in my life where um, you're so fearful of an event, you're so fearful of a failure or something that you have that thought go through your, even if it's just for a moment, you can have that thought go through your mind because of money. I would, I don't know this, I've not looked up the statistics, but I'd be willing to bet if we had the numbers, the real numbers on suicide, yeah. I'd be willing to bet that money was pretty high on that list in I terms of agree. reasons why.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that.
1: One one other thing I would want to mention, um, if you're struggling with debt, uh, yes, the first thing that you've got to do is you've got to repent. You've got to recognize that you have a problem. You have to repent and and change your ways. And that's what I call stopping the bleeding. You know, it's like a bucket with a hole in the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. You can keep pouring in, but if you don't stop the bottom, the the hole in the bottom, you keep getting into trouble. And so for some of us, it's going to take downsizing our home. To really get out of trouble, and that's a that's a scary thought that you'd have to downsize your home or move somewhere else, but it may be a it may be a better alternative to bankruptcy. Now, right now, you know we're 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 in the coronavirus thing, right? And the the foreclosures uh, have been put off for a lot of institutions, and uh, I think there's going to be some people that that does benefit. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it was right or wrong. I'm just saying it is what it is. So some people are going to have to downsize their homes, sell cars. Um, They're going to have to give up some activities that they're used to. They're going to have to get used to cooking at home. Wow, what a terrible thought to actually have to work (laughs) work for your food and you can't go to a restaurant and get it easily, but that could save you some money. The other thing that I would tell you is you don't need to spend money to get out of debt. So you don't have to buy a book, you don't have to go through a course. You don't, you don't, if anybody wants to get money out of you to get you out of debt then you need to really pray about that because it could be a trap or it could be something that's, uh, maybe partially beneficial, but not real beneficial. Mm-hmm. And I say that because, you know, there's a, it's just not rocket science to get out of debt. You stop the bleeding mm-hmm. and you you do the things that you have to do. You make the tough decisions and you start going the other direction and, it, and it's not going to be done. And, in and, in, you know, if you're severely in debt, you're not going to get out of it in a month. If you didn't get in it in a month, you're not going to get out of it in a month. Um, There are some exceptions, right, going back to the medical thing or cancer treatment and things like that, and and, and certainly that's understandable. But you do have to have a plan to get out of debt. You need to write it down, whatever it is, and you can make your own plan. Pray about it. You can make your own plan to get out of debt. There's not a wrong way. There's not a bad way. A simple one, a quick one, you could pay off your smallest loans first. That's a – that's one that you know gives you some some dopamine kind of injection. A victory, yeah, it's kind of a victory, a right? Uh-huh. Another another way is you can pay off the ones that have the highest interest first. So you work on a credit card as opposed to your house note. Um, there's not a wrong way, and there's there's in some ways there's not a better way as long as you have a plan, you've prayed about it, and you've developed it, and you stick to it. That's what matters, um, and and you don't you don't backtrack on it. You don't dis, you don't start getting out of debt and then you go. Yeah, I'm tired of driving this car. I think I'm gonna go get a new one. And then you just defeated everything that you've done. And so it's the same way if you if you've got a struggle with alcohol and you're sober for five years and then you decide you need to go to a bar and and break your sobriety. It's it's not any different. Mm-hmm. And so it it has to be treated that way. It has to be treated as an addiction problem if consumption is your problem. And then I would say this because you know, there's, there's a tendency for people to look for the easy way out. So we want to buy a book that's got a plan in it that we can follow. And there's not anything wrong with that. But if you create the plan yourself, then there's more of a sense of accomplishment to that. Whereas, I mean, what do you, Oh, so I followed so-and-so's plan and, and they got me out of debt. No, they didn't. They didn't get you out of debt. (laughs) You got yourself out of debt because you used a plan and you prayed about it and you did the things that you needed to do. And so how much more beneficial is it then to to create your own plan with your spouse and then follow that.
0: Some of these books and seminars are pretty expensive in themselves. Yeah, right? I don't like, understand. I, mean, just, yeah. I don't
1: understand why a ministry wants to charge somebody $1000 for a course on how to get out of debt. You, you know, that's yeah. that should be something that's out of the goodness of your heart. I mean, you should you should be trying to help people. And I get that everybody's got a business and everybody wants to try to make a living, but let's don't try to profit from it. Yeah, and and there's some bad advice in those. There's it's easy to have good advice and some some good use of scripture mm-hmm. combined in with some bad advice, and I think that that's the case in a lot of in a lot of people. Yeah, you know? uh, a lot of the books that I've seen, I, I, I've I've read, and you think a lot about someone, and then you read the book and you go, this is this is not biblically responsible. And that's, that's the other course that I would tell you to make sure that people go down. It's not just a matter of getting out of debt, but then when you're out of debt, what are you going to do then? Whose advice are you going to listen to? You know, because not, not many people out there are talking about biblically responsible investing, not yet, right. mm-hmm. but I, I do think it is snowballing. And we've got companies like uh, Eventide and Inspire and Timothy Plan and, and Dan Celia and his ministry. Um, we've got a lot of people now that are that are mainstream, that are national, um, and, and you have to be looking for them.
0: Yeah, that's good news. It is. Yeah. It is
1: very. It's very good news, and it was. You know, it's been a frustration of mine through the years mm-hmm. that we we have very limited options, um, but it's getting better really quickly, and so I'm I'm pleased with that.
0: Thank you, Garrett. Very very helpful information for us. Very practical. Um, Everything begins with the heart. Uh, the Bible says to guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. So uh, listeners, we're grateful to you. We hope this has been helpful to you. We hope that you'll um, continue to to tune in to Eye on the Ball. We want to help you to to seek out the biblical priorities that God has for you in your life. Garrett, help us um, on how you find us and so our church you website, share and that sort of thing. Yeah, our church yeah. website
1: is—we've um, actually got two addresses that you can get there— odfspringhill.com is one way you can get to our church website. Um, The other name for it is gammatown.org, and uh, you tell us a little bit. G
0: a m m a t o w n, yeah. uh, Gammatown is our expression for sort of like the oasis in the wilderness. Uh, We're between. Uh, Egypt, when we become believers, uh, we're no longer ca- um, slaves in Egypt. Uh, we're sort of in the wilderness. We're looking forward to crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, but uh, Gamma Town is, is God's kingdom here on earth. Um, it's making the best of, um, of what we have, uh, relying on God. It's, it's sort of a, the idea of a garden where God and man meet in order to to do business together, in order to get our insights and and uh, making the best of where God plants us, blooming where we're planting. So uh, that's uh, Gamma Town. Um, we're not Alpha. Spring Hill's not an Alpha city like Dallas. Uh, we're not a, a Beta city like Fort Worth and an Alpha want to be. We're a Gamma town. That's an individualist. Somebody's who they are, who God created them to be, but the very best of who they can be. So. Um, that's where we came up with the idea of Gamma.
1: Yeah, so you can find us there on the church website. And then I also have a personal website that's um, strictly from a financial standpoint for, for ministry. And it's just com. And uh, I, I have blog posts there and um, some other information. I'm working on it. It's a work yeah, in progress.
0: Yeah. Looking forward um, to your book, uh, writing a book. Yeah, and, um, I hope I yeah, can, I can get that at...
1: done this year in 2021. Um, uh, it's taken a lot longer than I thought it ever would, but uh, working on it. And so it'll be kind of information compiled in one place. And that's the idea. And so um, God bless you. We hope that you've uh, benefited from this and we will talk more about financial issues going forward. Um, I think for those of you that are listening, we're going to alternate between talking about financial and economic issues and spiritual issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why you've got a financial guy here and a pastor here, And um, we hope that you enjoy it. And if you have questions or topics that you would like us to cover, please feel free to email us, um, either one of us, and we'll be glad to cover that.
0: Amen. Great job. Thank you, Garrett.